Hi and welcome to Detox Talks the Detox a podcast where we talk to some of the world's finest leaders about their detox rituals and how they maintain continuity in a world of noise and chaos how they make sure that the criticism that the world puts on them doesn't affect their insight and they still continue to perform as well as they do thanks for tuning in this is kanal chandirmani and you are listening to Detox Talks the Detox with Clyde Fernandez on the podcast Clyde is the regional vice president for Salesforce. Welcome to the podcast. It's great having you. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege and an honor to be on here. So thank you for uh, sharing your your stage, your microphone and a part of your life with me. I'm full of gratitude and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. It's totally a privilege. Clyde, so you I've heard so many incredible journeys and you've definitely had one that's really helped you grow in so many directions and probably one of the most challenging ones. I've ever come across. I'd love to uh, hear it from you. Of course, um, it's interesting. You know, when people ask you quite often, they say to you, "Where are you from?" I think about this, and and I was on a call actually yesterday with an organisation called AIM, which I think you know, um, in here in Australia, um, the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. And I was on a call with them, and they they were asking, they were posing that question, "Where are you from?" And for me. that's a multifaceted question which requires a multifaceted answer so where i'm from is is this beautiful little little country that's uh, soon to have the biggest population in the world called india um so i grew up um, in a beautiful part of india and there's so many beautiful parts in india called kerala um in particular a place called vaipin which is uh, near kochi or cochin or used to be called cochin now kochi um and i spent the first probably five and a half years there and i grew up with my my father's family my my, my father was um the eldest of 10 children his name was also clyde um, so i'm clyde junior or was clyde junior and we grew up with his family and and uh, being a you know typical indian family the whole family lived in one house right it was, it was a pretty big house and and as the first grandchildren we we were spoiled rotten uh, by our, our grandparents and also by our uncles and aunties because there's lots of them still living there my father as i said was the elder so he got married first and then he was um stationed all over india he was in the tele- telegraph um so he stationed all over india he was also in the army so he did that a bit so we typically stayed in in vaipin and then um he traveled all over the country with my with my mum and then latterly uh, our youngest brother was born uh, one day they came back visited us and said okay we're going to go to we're moving to england from india and we didn't know what england was we didn't know we just sort of another another one of our auntie or uncle's places and um but they went uh, two years ahead of us i think two or three years ahead of us and so they went to england set up with our youngest brother uh, john um to set up house in, in england um and then we followed three years later these um for for little uh, you know um <laughs> for, for skinny little children from india leaving this beautiful tropical paradise with palm trees and and freedoms and um safety and uh, love and uh, attention um with lots of lots of help from all sorts of different definitions of help and landing in this freezing cold miserable country called england and uh, being all rugged up in in uh, in as much warm clothes as we can that was the first time i noticed difference um, because you know when you're born and grow up in a in a pretty homogenized world 
everything looks the same, everyone talks the same, everyone acts the same. Um, you know, you can run around barefoot uh, with hardly anything on because it's so warm and beautiful. And all of a sudden, there's this huge cla uh, clash of, or contrast of, of environments. That's the biggest, the biggest difference I noticed, the environmental differences. Um, and then, then, then the difference in people and people's attitude. And, uh, and that's when I first noticed that, hey, I'm, I actually look different to people in this country. Um, now, how did I know that? Because I got told that repeatedly. So that was probably the first opportunity, if you like, to um, develop resilience and develop uh, a good sense of humor. Uh, as I often joke with my sons, you know, England taught me a lot of things, but the thing that taught me the most was how to, how to be quick, quick uh, with a joke, how to be um, uh, quick with your fists, and how to be quick with your feet. Um, so, you know, having a fast mouth, fast hands, and fast feet certainly helped me in those early times. But uh, look, England was amazing for us. Um, and it wasn't until much later when I was grown up as an adult did I really truly appreciate and understand the huge sacrifice our parents took in, in moving away from everything they knew, everything they valued, everything they loved, everything they feel comfortable, and move from this place where they were revered to this new environment where they were basically nothing. In England in those years, it wasn't that you were hated. It was actually you were nothing. Uh, you, you didn't really even register on anyone's on anyone's radar or, um, or or list of priorities so you were you were othered you were nothing that's tough right as a kid but the thing that that saved us was each other because we are a relatively big family seven in the family so we learned to really you know appreciate one another um but we had this amazing bond between the you know the brothers and sisters and some of our cousins and our parents our parents were pretty much doting parents especially my mum i've said this in a few different podcasts actually you know, throughout my life, I've had, really, I've had two coaches, um, both women. Um, the first one lasted 15 years, and the second one's lasted now over 40 years. My current life partner, I'm hoping she stays with me. Um, but the first coach was my mum. And I, when I say coach, I mean it as a coach, because she took the scales off my eyes, and she helped me see things that I never saw. And the thing that she helped me see the most was what was in the mirror, which was me. And she kept instilling in me that, uh, you know, you're very special, Clyde, you're, you know, you can do anything, which was, which is another contrast, right? Because I was in this world in England, where that wasn't the vocabulary, that wasn't the, um, the, the perspective from anybody else outside of my family towards me. I was this, you know, putting it crudely, I was this little dark boy who smelt funny, spoke funny, and was probably stupid because he didn't understand much. So that was part of the formation of, of this development of my philosophy, but also this, this resilience. And then we we had a great, we ended up having a great time in England. And, and you know, we, we got our permanent residency there. We became British, as a lot of us Indians say in England. We became very Pucker British uh, to the point where we were probably more British than the British were. And then we, um, around about my 15th birthday, we, we relocated to, um, sorry, 13th birthday, we relocated to Australia um, in Sydney, Sydney, Australia. Beautiful. And I remember the year before we relocated, um, we even though we were as poor as poor as sin, uh, my father we used to work for an airline. Uh, I don't know if they're still going or not, but it was called Olympic Airways. It was the Greek, Greece's national air carrier. And he worked for them, even though, you know, he didn't get paid much. What he did get was two free tickets uh, to anywhere in the world. Um, so, of course, he used them to travel 
to Australia. In um, 73, he traveled with my elder sister um, back to Australia for my one of my auntie's wedding. In 74, he traveled to Australia with my eldest brother, uh, Christopher, um, to um, just visit Australia. And in 70, um, I think 75, my mum and I got to travel and I came over with her, one of my auntie's um, wedding. And that opened my eyes up to, again, another contrast. Um, here's this country we're living in. It was, um, and I, I used colours to describe the two countries. I said to my mum, I used to call her mummy and, you know, mummy and daddy. I said, mummy, why are we living in England? And this is after we returned to England from Australia for our trip. The trip was wonderful because, you know, you're treated like, you know, Maharajas and you're treated like, uh, you know, royalty, basically. And you go back to England and you're back into that grind of what is the existence of England for us. And I said to her, Mommy, why are we, why are we living here? And she goes, and, and she recognized that I was getting quite sad. She goes, you know, what is it, son? What, what, what are you thinking? I said, you know, the only way I can describe it, Mommy, is that if England and Australia were two colors, England would be gray and Australia would be gold or yellow. It's so bright there. It's beautiful. The people are nice. The people welcome you. No one ever talked about my color in, in Australia. Uh, and don't get me wrong. That's, I'm not saying there's no racism. There's plenty of racism in every, every place. But in terms of my experience at that particular time, they were more interested in my, you know, in my sense of humor and my speed and a few other things. So... Again, I was back in this mode of thinking, why are we in this place called England where, uh, you know, pretty much downtrodden, devalued, almost dehumanized, as opposed to coming to this great country called Australia where the sun's out all the time, it's warm, um, you don't have to put much clothes on again, um, and the people are quite friendly. Now, unbeknownst to me that my mum and dad were already thinking about relocating, and a year later we relocated. So I guess to close us out, every one of those changes brought challenges but also brought opportunity. And uh, the thing I finally understood under the tutelage of my second coach was, you know, that old adage of it's not the hand you're dealt, it's how you play your hand. Um, so it's not what's in front of you. It's not what's served up to you. It's not even what's forced down your throat. It's what, it's how you respond to it. How do you actually respond in the best possible way that's going to position you in the best possible light for whatever it is you're trying to achieve? In order to do all those things, You've got to have an overarching purpose in life. You've got to have a vision. You've got to you've got to have you know clear idea of what what good looks like. Um, but once you've got that, you you need to then get on with it. You need to actually put down you know good good habits. And I've actually written up on my board. And I was I was showing you before. I was thinking about our talk, and I was thinking what what would what's important to me. What habits are really important to me? Um, the idea of um, of having healthy habits. The idea of having a well thought out philosophy and i pretty much now i think about it i'm pretty much aligned to the stoic philosophies um but within that i think about living in a state of flow so it doesn't feel like a lot of effort um but it, it belies you know living in a or, or performing in a state of flow belies some important things and what it what it, what it belies is that you need to have a lot of things like a lot of disciplines and a lot of capabilities and a lot of competencies already under your belt. So I think in terms of the notion of lifelong learning um, and also another one uh, called practice makes permanent. Uh, not practice makes perfect because nothing is perfect, but practicing makes permanence. Permanence of knowledge, permanence of skills, permanence of performance. Um, and the one thing that uh, this last couple of years has taught us is that um, what you've got to be is you've always got to be ready. Always got to be ready to take take full advantage of an opportunity comes along to you. So in order to do that, you've got to think about all the skills, experiences, connections, people 
in other words, that uh, you need in order to live a happy, healthy and honest life. This is great. I talked about stoicism, I talked about resilience, and um, sometimes uh, life throws you lessons, right? And um, so when I was, uh, I mentioned to you that we relocated to Australia. Um, I mentioned to you that my father was Clyde Senior, I'm Clyde Junior um, in our family, you know, truth is in, in Indian culture, the eldest son is, you know, son and heir. And in fact, my elder sister, my youngest brother, who were the two bookends in the in the children were, were very smart and very clever. I think they um, uh, achieved a duck status in every year they were in. So they were always very, very um, competent academically. Um, my younger sister was a beautiful princess and, um, you know, that's, that's who she was. So I typically was the comic relief, um, <laughs> which, which sometimes stirred into me pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable behavior. So I was, I was a cheeky bugger. I was always pushing. I was always very curious. Things which to a limit is tolerated within my family. But after the third you know, time I asked why, my father would, um, I don't know whether this translates, well, I don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but he'd say to me, I'm going to give you one chepu now. You've got to stop asking me these questions, right? Um, and I knew what that meant. If I didn't stop, I'd get a, a, a basically a smack across the back of the head. And I thought that was just normal, right? That was just, but I was always curious. I was always curious, and I was also curious about the, um, you know, the sacred cows and the and the defi- the, the, the accepted uh, belief systems or, or facts, if you like. And, and then you find out some of the facts that we thought we had weren't facts at all; they were just opinions. I'd question that. So we arrived in Australia in '76. Um, my father, um, you know, he, he was he was a pretty proud man. He was a very proud man, um, and sometimes a pride would would shield him from really understanding what his uh, abilities were and what his uh, limitations were. Um, um, but he, um, he was very proud very, and very good dad, very, very good provider, the best of his ability. My mother was the brains behind the operation, but in classic Indian style, um, no one knew that because, you know, my father was up the front and my mother would, would happily give him the limelight and let everybody know that it's it's Clyde's ideas, but in fact, you know, um, as a as a student of life that I am, I recognise very early that uh, the brains, as I said, the brains behind the operation was my mum. But going back to my dad, so in '76 we arrived. In '78 he got his driver's license for the first time in the February '78, and um, by this time, and he bought this this uh, rickety old car, basically like a station wagon or an, an, an estate or whatever terminology when he's a long, basically a big family car, um, but it was an old car. Um, so it didn't have any of the modern cons or any of the safety features that current cars have. Um, and at this stage, by this time, my eldest brother had joined the Australian Air Force. So he'd been shipped off to a, to the an Air Force base in country New South Wales, which is the state where, where um, Sydney is part of. It's about 500 kilometres from Sydney. And my father, is, uh, we, as I said, we're very close, um, made a declaration that, you know, um, on this particular date, we're going to drive to Wagga, Wagga Wagga, which is the name of the play, name of the town or the city in uh, um, country New South Wales. Um, and we're going to leave on Friday night and we're going to follow a particular road that is younger brother had told him about called the Olympic Way. Let me paint the picture. So here's a man who's now 43 years old, gets his license in February. And we all know what, I, I, I'm assuming a lot of people will know what driving is. You know, you can get your license, but you don't actually fully get to know how to drive until you've had lots of experience. But 
within three months, he's, he's decided to drive his entire family, other than his elder son, across this country in uh, on a Friday night after after working all week. So he's tired, he's inexperienced, and he's and he's stubborn, right? I said he's, he's a pretty proud man. So once he decides, once he says something, he has to do it, even if it kills him. Long story short, I had one of my you know usual. I'll call it debates or conversations or arguments with my father. And for the first time, he came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder. He used to call me Clyde, and my mum did as well. He said, Clyde, you're getting to be big now. You're almost a man. Um, you know, daddy and you can't be arguing, especially if, you know, if I'm going to be driving soon. He said, so why don't you travel with your uncle? So my, uh, my younger uncle was traveling with us, driving up with him to show, you know, to basically, because he was worried about my dad, I think, to make sure he keeps company and also show the way. But um, he said to me, why don't you travel with uncle? I felt elated. I felt fantastic. I felt like, wow, he's finally recognizing, you know, that I've got something to say. He's finally recognizing that I'm I'm worthy of conversation, but also worthy of a point of view. And he's given me this beautiful privilege of traveling with my uncle. Um, Because anybody who comes from a large family knows that one thing you do crave for is a bit of of attention, a bit of uh, alone time. The trouble with it is though, that as soon as you get that alone time, guess what you crave for? You crave for your family. (laughs) So, (laughs) So within very short order, um, I'm driving my uncle. We pull over to get petrol or whatever. And I try to convince my brother and my sisters to trade places with me. And they said, no, 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 we're okay. And then I said, okay, well, I'm moving in. And my elder sister, Debbie, who um, was like a second mum to me. So, you know, if she said jump, I'd say, tell me when I can come back, back to ground again. She said, she said, Clyde, you can see we're all set up here nicely. Um, if you if you come into the car now, you'll cause problems. You'll disrupt our game. You'll just go and travel with Uncle. We're going to be there soon. It'll be fine. So you know you can't debate with my my elder sister because, like I said, she's very clever, but she's also like a second mum to me. Right? So respect. I said, okay, jump back in the car. And then, um, you know, it started becoming dusk. Uh, we're driving down this windy old road and um, I'm starting to fall asleep. And all of a sudden, I felt like I saw something in the revision mirror of my uncle's car because I'm sitting in the back seat. Yeah. I said, uncle, where's daddy? And he goes, it's okay, son, you go back to sleep. Um, he's right, be- you know, daddy's right behind us. And I said, no, I thought I saw something. He goes, oh, maybe you're just sleeping. And, and I'm watching... I've always been a, a big observer of people and people's behavior. And I'm watching his eyes look at the rear vision mirror. You know how you can sit from the back seat, you can see the other person's eyes going up, up to the mirror back, up to the mirror back. And he just keeps driving. All of a sudden he said, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll just pull over and wait for him because there's a couple of bends there. Maybe he's, he's, uh, he's coming in the corner. I'll just wait for him here. We wait another couple of minutes. And then he said, oh, maybe I'll go back. Maybe he's at a puncture or something like yeah. Drive back. And as we're driving back, um, we're yeah. crossing what's called a creek in Australia, like a, a small a skinny uh, you know, a tributary off, an, off a river. And there's a rickety old bridge there. And as we're crossing it, you know, I still yeah. remember it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a full moon in the sky, the sky. Yeah. You know, so therefore... <laughs> There's plenty of light there, even though it's it's pitch black now. And as we're crossing this bridge, it's like a single single lane bridge, old wooden bridge. I saw on my on the left side of my eye just something which I saw that was coming out of the water in this in this creek. And um, very calmly, I said to my uncle, I said, "Uncle, is that is that Daddy's car?" And he said, and he just looked at looked in the mirror and looked over. And then as as we're driving past, as as the headlights went past the creek. The full the full moonlight went on it, and you could see an exhaust pipe coming out of the water. So we pulled over, 
jumped in, you know, middle of the night, you're scared, you're, all your worst fears are coming to re reality. And we jumped in and um, look, it's sometimes, you know, I'm not a big believer in fate, um, but perhaps in this situation, you know, it was just meant to be because the way the car ended up, the car ended up, from my memory, ended up back opposite way, upside down. So imagine the car traveling along the bridge and then it's ended up upside down going back the other way inside the water under the water so we tried in vain um, couldn't see anything couldn't open doors couldn't do anything um and then you know b before i knew it because time has a weird you know during crisis time either goes super fast or goes super slow i seem to recall it going very slow because we were trying to do a lot of things and it just wasn't working we couldn't couldn't open the doors we couldn't do all this and um then i then next thing i remember was i was in this little farmhouse waiting the emergency services to turn up because the police were already there and and i was in this farmhouse i don't know whose farmhouse it was but i was in the bedroom looking out the window and looking at the moon in the sky and and i had this sort of weird thought that that moon was pretty much the same moon i remember seeing the previous night in in you know you know from our home um and for everyone in the world pretty much for most people in the world um you know the moon hasn't changed and neither has their life. But for me, my entire life um, in that in that moment had had totally changed. And um, so at 15, I found myself, you know, without my parents, without my two sisters and without my younger brother. Um, and um, that was another, you know, another um, uh, fork in the road, fork in the life, life journey uh, that I had to think about and navigate. And, and I didn't particularly manage it very well. You know, I, you know as a 15-year-old, I think it probably makes sense. I I became very, um, I started believing I was indestructible you know, because clearly somebody wanted to keep me alive. Um, we were raised Roman Catholic. I'm not, a, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but we were raised Roman Catholic. So there was one part of me believing that, okay, they're, they're, they're okay. They're good people. They're going to end up in heaven and they're looking down at me. Another part of my brain was telling me this is all just a joke. This is just a, um, a pretend TV series. And very quickly, someone's going to come around the corner and tell me, oh, you did really well. You, you know, you behave, you quitted yourself well. And, um, and another part of me told me that, Clyde, this is life. And uh, clearly you um, are here to do other things. Um, but obviously, clearly you, you're pretty indestructible as well. Um, I took that to heart and started doing some rather stupid behaviors from, from 15 to probably 16 and a half, which is my final years of school. And then eventually I do a lot of self-talk. And I was talking to myself saying, you know, Clyde, no one's going to begrudge you if you want to act like an idiot. No one's going to begrudge that. And no one's going to raise it with you. No one's going to say anything to you, right? Because, because it's such a horrific thing that's just happened. And you've got such an amazing loss that no one's going to be able to, in, in all consciousness, be able to say to you, pull yourself together. But actually, that's exactly what was needed. Um, but luckily for me, I was doing a lot of self-talk and I just kept talking to myself and saying, look, you know, that's cool. You can keep doing this, Clyde. Um, but eventually you're going to have to come back onto this path and and honor your parents, honor your honor your family, and honor honor what they stood for. And they stood for goodness. They stood for, you know, for just giving you your all. Um, like I said, my father wasn't a particularly smart man, but he was very industrious. He he always made sure him and my mom always made sure there's a roof over our head. Our, our bellies were full. Um, and there's plenty of love in the house. And that's when I realized, okay, I've got to, I've got to um, pull myself together, um, pull my pants up and get on with life. And then, and that, that was literally the second last year of my school where I got that epiphany. And I remember, you know, 
my uncle who was uh, I was staying with at the time. I was in the in the deputy principal's office um, because I basically failed every single subject I possibly could, except for religious education. <laughs> but I failed all the subjects I loved: maths, physics, chem, biology, economics, and even the subjects I didn't particularly like, like um, English and uh, literature. I was sitting there with the brother, with the with the deputy headmaster, brother Christopher with my uncle and this brother was saying to my uncle and to me look you know there's no there's no shame in leaving school and going and getting a trade and you know getting a job because you know not everybody is made for academics and academia i think i felt numb for about a year and a half after the accident and i remember feeling a bit numb and then finally there was a question that was asked of me and my uncle was asking me the question and i sort of almost like came back into focus and i said sorry what did you say uncle and he goes oh you know is that what you want to do Clive? would you like to leave and get a trade and i just looked at him i said a trade no I couldn't, I couldn't do a trade. And, the, and Brother Christopher said, but Clyde, it's okay. You can get a trade, you can get a good job. You can, you know, tradespeople make lots of money. I said, it's not about the money. It's just, I know what I'm interested in. Um, he said, yes, but obviously, you know, acad- academics is not your strong suit. I said, yeah, it is. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, oh, look, I just, you know, I should try basically. And he goes, but he said to me, I don't think it's that easy. I said, yeah, I think it is that easy because I, I haven't been trying for, the year, for a year and a half. So within, and that's that's for me how some of the things, some of the decisions I make operate. Where once I make a decision, I'm pretty resolute about it. I, I want to get out, get up, get on with it. I'm not stubborn about it. If if I make a decision and it's not working or I can't get to it, I will modify it. But in terms of applying yourself, that was an easy one for me. So I started applying myself at school. You know, matriculated well, um, and ended up. You know, in a technology in the technology industry back before it was a technology industry, and uh, rode have ridden that wave ever since. Um, then got married quite young, um, and then the next you know challenge came along, which was our elder son um, um, ended up um, having a thing called severe autism, where he doesn't speak and you know, can't communicate very effectively. Um, everything is quite scary for him, quite um, uh, quite stressful for him. And so that was the next. That was probably the last of the major life lessons that I've had. And and again, it was it was my beautiful coach who helped me ex- helped me understand and reframe what it was that we had. We didn't have a challenge in our life. We had a gift in our life to actually improve ourselves to the point where we can support him and enable him to have the best life he can. Because um, as she said, and as I believe now, um, he didn't choose to be born. That was on us. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we build an amazing life for him. And in the main, we do that. He still struggles um, almost every day. Um, but, um, you know, he's the eldest of our three sons. Each of them are amazing humans. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big, <laughs> I label everything. So if I think about my family, you know, um, as I said to you before, my wife or my life partner, um, her label is coach. Uh, my eldest son's label is probably courage because every day I, I watch him, he he turns up, he faces the world, even though he doesn't have any idea how this world works. And yet he still leads with courage. And that's, some, that's a lesson that I've learned from him. Um, our second son, he is the most compassionate human that I've come across. He's got huge compassion, huge compassion for everything and everybody, um, despite the fact of being, you know, um, having a pretty rough 
childhood, you know, having a big brother like his big brother um, and having a dad at the time who wasn't, wasn't fully tuned into what he needed. And then our younger son, um, who's uh, 10 years junior to our second son, um, the word that I describe him is he, he's our communicator. He can communicate anything. He's got, he's very articulate. He's an amazing storyteller. And most importantly, uh, he can convert complex ideas in very simple prose. Um, and, and, and because of that skill, he can influence people quite effectively. So, which, so each of them have their amazing toolboxes um, and each of them have helped me build an amazingly rich and deep life. So challenges, yes, reframe, rewrite the script from challenges to opportunities, um, um, you know, rewrite the script from crisis to capabilities or to compassion. Um, and the things that I think about now are the, the very soft skills that I look for in people, um, and they are um, humility, empathy, and resilience. And that, by the way, spells H-E-R, her, because I quite often see a lot of those capabilities and characteristics in women. Um, but the good news is we are all learning that now. And for the future of work and the, fu in the future, this next wave of, of, of the world, those three human traits are going to not only help us survive, but actually thrive in this new world, um, but also help us um, um, support one another and help us realize that we are not islands. We're actually all part of the same universal energy flow. And uh, if I do good or if I do bad, it, it affects everybody. So um, my preference is to try and inject more good, try and inject more growth, try and inject more um, uh, trust, basically be, be, be a contributor rather than a receiver. Um, because every time when I need, I need something from, from, the, uh, from the matrix, um, but while I can give, I want to keep giving. That's very, very beautifully phrased. So Clyde posts that when, you, when there's a situation that you go through, anything from uh, low intensity to of any other level, What's the framework you use given everything that you went through and that you came out of today when, in fact, not just today, even after that, post that in your early life, when you go through another challenge that comes up, what's the framework, what's the self-talk that you go through? Yeah, it's a really good question. Look, I think the one thing that I've trained myself on over a long time now is, is the idea of habits, especially healthy habits. Um, so I, I think about what are the things I can do to build, to build capability to help me actually operate, especially when I'm overextended. We all have natural abilities, natural, natural skills, natural attributes. Um, then we present a particular way to most people. And then there's a version of us that comes out when we're overextended. What do I mean by overextended? Typically when you're cognitively depleted or you're physically depleted, emotionally, spiritually depleted, you are in an overextension mode. You need to recognize that. Number one is recognize it when you're there because my overextension response is probably anger. Um, and I'm saying probably because, in fact, I know it's anger because the people who know me the best, my loved ones know that when I'm overextended, that seems to be the, the tool that I take out of the toolbox first. Um, why why is that why do I do that? Because actually anger is a very um, motivating and 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 um, energizing emotion. Not healthy though. It's very healthy if 
you want to use anger to get away from a saber-toothed tiger or, or an aggressor of some sort. The truth is that is not the case for 99.99% of the time. So we've got to retrain our biology to recognize that when you're feeling cornered, actually you're not being cornered. So a couple of frameworks I use. One is this notion of staying, keeping your battery fully charged. So on my whiteboard, and I don't have a whiteboard right now, I've got one here in my office, but back home, I used to have a whiteboard. And on it was a three by three matrix, which I drew up. On the left-hand side, it said people, processes, and places. Across the top, it said positive and minus. And in each cell, I wrote down people, processes, and places that either contribute energy to me or detract energy from me. Now, the reason I do it is so that I know what they are ahead of time. And so if I have to go into meet a person or do a process or go to a place which I know is going to deplete my energy, guess what I do first? I go and top my battery up first. And what do I do? I look at the other column and say, what is going to contribute to energy? So energy management to me is the new black. 20 years ago, it was all about task management. 10 years ago, it was all about time management. Today, I think it's all about energy management. And if you can recognize where your battery level is, um, just like, you know, think about it as a, as a battery icon on your laptop, right? Put it on yourself figuratively, put it on yourself, even if you do it physically, find a way to do it where you can check yourself. Um, I'm, I'm now reasonably good at recognizing when my energy is dropping and don't allow your energy to drop below 50%. And the reason I say 50% and people say, oh, that's just plenty of capacity. Well, actually it's not because energy is not like, it's not a linear thing. I don't know if you recognize on your phone or your laptop, one second it says 50, you're 100% for a long time, then all of a sudden it says you're 50%, and then within nanoseconds, you're at zero. What is that about, right? But that's typically how, for me, my mind, body, spirit works as well. So I always think, where am I? Where's my energy? Where's my cognition? Where are my emotions? Where are my stresses? Um, if I drop below, if I drop around 50%, I immediately go and do something out of that list to help me build my energy. Because prevention is better than cure. So, you know, you you, if you can avoid getting into the chronic state, if you can avoid having to detox, if you avoid having to recover, much better proposition. Like it's much better proposition to prevent than try and fix, right? But that's not how life works. Sometimes you find yourself having to fix things. So what I do then is because I'm constantly thinking when I'm highly energized, I think about what my purpose is. I think about um, my purpose, uh, what I call, you know, intraday, Intra week, intra month, quarter, year, and then ten years, and I have it documented. I've actually had it listed out, and and you know I use different methods for different things. Right now, I'm I'm leveraging quite heavily from Salesforce. We use a annual planning methodology called V2 Mom. That's vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measurements, and it's a beautiful, simple way of trying to crystallize what's important i.e. what does your North Star look like? That's what you're going to go after this year. Um, how are you going to do it? What values are important to you? And stack rank the values because that's important too. Then what are the methods you're going to employ? What are the obstacles you're going to overcome? And what are the metrics or measurements you're going to put in place to actually keep yourself on track? I do all of that for myself. And you, and you don't make it, I, I just make it really simple. And the simpler something is, 
and the easier it is for you to use, guess what? You use it more. So I think in terms of, uh, you know, proper, proper preparation prevents, uh, you know, what performance. Um, so I think about things in advance. But if I ever find myself in, you know, below 50% mode, I, I, I then think about how do I, how do I detox? How do I detox out of the situation? And my go-to is something physical. It's always something physical. So um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was in New York for our company kickoff. Um, everyone knows what jet lag feels like at some point. Um, I'm there. I typically don't suffer too badly from jet lag because I, in my head, I, I won't allow myself. But, but that particular Sunday morning, um, you know, it was a long, long flight. We had to do a layover in, in Sydney first, then in LA. Um, so feeling a little bit. So what can you do? Well, I went for a run. I went for a jog. I, went, I did something physical. Why? Because I, in t- a couple of important points here. I do something physical, but I also do something that I, I don't have to think about. So walking, hugging, talking, running, nothing more complicated than that. I won't go cycling because there's a level of consciousness, a level of attention, a level of focus you've got to have when you're cycling, especially in traffic. I won't go to the gym because even that, you know, a little bit dangerous when you're not fully focused. But I can walk or carry some weight while I'm walking or go for a jog. So my, my go-to is if I'm feeling something, I move my body. So I do something physical. At home, my beautiful life partner will allow me to, you know, I'll go and hug her, right? Or I'll go and engage with her. I'll go and talk to her. I'll go and find out what's going on. Or I'll test out some, some you know, theory that I'm, I'm thinking about or some, some thought, thought experiment or or narrative, I'll test it out on her and, and ask her to sort of to hack it with me. But just being with her, hugging her, holding her hand, whatever, that energizes me. Um, if she's not around, um, um, you know, going for a run, really good, or at least go for a walk. The other things I love doing is I love getting a coffee, not just drinking the coffee, but the whole experience of going, going to my favorite coffee shop, talking to the owner, talking to the people, engaging, connecting, I get energized from that. And, and obviously having the coffee as well. So something physical, people, so activity like that, I will go to that immediately. And I think about what can I do? And I have to go on the camera and I'm feeling really flat. So I'll turn the camera off and I'll do some push-ups. I'll do some star jumps. I'll do some squats. I'll do something to get the blood flowing. Or I'll do what, what most of us Indians know to do. I'll, bre- I'll do some breathing exercises. I'll just Find a way to get the energy up. And if I, once I get the energy up, guess what? Problems, aren't, problems don't look as bad. Um, the issues that I was struggling with two seconds ago, um, um, solutions come flooding back. Your creative juices flow more. Um, so there's some very definite things I do. Um, but the biggest one is I try and prevent myself getting into that situation in the first place. If I do find myself there, I do something physical. I um, either something as simple as doing some squats some deep breathing, some box breathing, um, or alternate nostril breathing. Um, if I've got time, go for a run. Um, um, but connect with people, connect with places, connect with processes that I really like. That's incredible. I, I like the analogies you've used. They're so deep and yeah, they just help get it all together. Uh, so any daily processes that you follow that help you out, just keep the whole day at bay, keep 
stay peaceful, stay aligned with your inner self for the whole day? Yeah, so I mentioned habits before, so I'm a bit, bit of a robot from a habits point of view. Um, not not really robotic, but I, I like to flex them a little bit, but, but there are certain mm-hmm. things I do every day. Um, I typically get up at the same time. Um, these days, I'm definitely, so to set yourself up for the day, again, get your battery fully charged first. How do you do that? Get a decent decent night's sleep. Um, you know, years ago, I thought I was a, you know, bit of a, bit of a Superman by just getting away with four and a half hours sleep a night. I, I thought that was fine. I thought it was plenty. And I think it was because I read some books which talked about some amazing individuals who just got away with that. And I, and I, I was performing quite well, except in one, one domain. And it's the most important domain. It's called your family, right? So, you know, my poor, poor Bridget would say to me, um, you know, if you don't stay active <laughs> after six o'clock at night, um, if the conversation isn't engaging with you, or you're not doing something physical, Clyde, you're asleep. So I went, okay. And our younger son has been at me for a long time about, and he knows how much, how important health is. And so I like to take a first principles approach to things. And so for me, um, you know, to, to live a good life, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to actually be living, right? So it's hard to live a good life if you're not living. It, defi- it, it, it uh, defines uh, um, the problem statement. Um, so you've got to be living. In order to have a, to live, what's what what's the, I guess the atomic things you need? Well, the first thing you need you need breath. You need to be able to breathe, and we take breathing for, for granted, but actually there's some really good breathing techniques and 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 habits you can get into, which which I like to do. I mean, part of it's yoga, right, and meditation. The second most important thing is actually is is sleep. I devalued sleep for so for so many years. So over the last probably four years, five years, I've been trying to increase my my nightly sleep and also I'm analyzing my sleep. So, you know, I can use, you know, my iWatch app and all that. It'll analyze my REM sleep versus my light sleep versus my deep sleep. So I'm now routinely getting between six and a half and seven and a half, sometimes even eight hours of sleep. Right? So I want to get to eight hours sleep at a minimum. And I, and I'm on a, on a particular you know journey to get that. So firstly, set your day up for success by having a good night's sleep. Then in the morning, I'm typically getting up automatically. I just, just my where my, my my body works. I'm up by about just before six. Normally, you know, if I set a, if I set an alarm for six o'clock, guess what time I wake up? I wake up at five to. If I set the alarm at five o'clock, I wake up at five to five. So I seem to just get up before the alarm goes off. I don't know how that works, but it works for me. The first thing I do because I'm a weird guy. Um, the first thing I do is I go and have a shave, and I've been I've, I've always done it. And and for me, I don't know why, but it makes me feel like it's a fresh day and it's a fresh Clyde. And part of that routine is to shave. So the first 10 minutes of my day is taken up shaving and um, going to the bathroom. Then um, once I've shaved and I'm feeling you know, nice and fresh and all that, I'll spend another 10 minutes doing something to get my mind working. Right now, I'm using a thing called Wordle. Right? I don't know if you've heard, heard about it. It's an app. or oh, it's not an app. It's actually a website. Yep. If you look up Wordle, W-O-R-D-L-E, it's just been taken over by Times, uh, by the New York New York um, New York Times, yep, yep. Um, uh, newspaper. Um, I do that every day, but I limit myself to ten minutes, and it's amazing, right? Um, I always I always seem to get the word out um, within ten minutes. Um, and what? Why am I doing that? One is it you know, getting your brain activated, but the time in position is to put myself under almost like a crisis mode. So I can learn to moderate my 
my respiration, you know, and my body, my mind. So I can go, look, even under pressure, keep yourself calm. Because if you want to operate in flow state, you've got to be calm. You make your best decisions when you're calm. You make you sometimes make life-saving decisions when you're stressed. That's because there's someone chasing you. But majority of the time, you don't need to do that. So majority of the time, you want to get yourself into a really good operating um, metrics around your heart rate, your blood pressure, and you're just a state of calm. Um, so I do that. So that's my new day um, behavior. Clyde's a new person every day by having a shave. That's my, my method I use to, to symbolize that. Then I get my brain activated by doing something cognitive to get my cognitive brain going. And then I go and do something physical. I go, I go and um, exercise. So I either go for a run. So typically I'm out of the house by about half past six. I'll either do a run or go to the gym or just go for a walk. Um, I, I, I seldom bike ride these days because, you know, one of my, um, I talked about, you know, happy, healthy and honest. Well, to be healthy, you've got to leave again. And uh, cycling is not that safe anymore. So um, it probably never was, but I'm becoming more aware of it now. So I try and limit taking additional risks. So I go and exercise um, and then I'll come back, spend as much time as I can with Bridget. Um, just over, she has breakfast. I don't, I don't eat breakfast. Um, I generally just have a coffee. For breakfast um then i will i like to have a slow start to the day so i just ease into my day uh, obviously shower and change i always like to change into what i call work clothes but it's the same clothes literally i would wear on a weekend or during the week whether it's with customers or not i typically have a stock standard uniform nice shoes nice socks a pair of jeans a t-shirt and a jacket right? that's what i that's, that's pretty much my, my uniform. So if you look at my wardrobe, it's pretty much lined up. You know, jackets to one side, my trousers, my T-shirts, and, and a couple of shirts as well, if, if, if the uh, occasion uh, requires it off, off me. Um, but I get into my uniform, um, and I'm, I'm then ready to go. But when I start my, my work day, that first hour I use for planning, purely planning. And the planning is, what am I going to do today? What's the most important things I need to do today? And I just stack rank it. Um, even if you make a, a list of 100 things, I stack rank it in order of priority. Sorry, in order of importance. That's how I prioritize. Important, not urgent. And then I just go through them. And I, and, and I set myself a task to get through the top three. So even if there's 300 or, or 30 or five, the top three are the ones I'm, I'm tasking myself to get done. Then I plan out my time. So I talked about energy before, but then I plan out my time. So I make sure... I'm aligning time to the tasks. Um, and then by about 11 o'clock is when I do my deep thinking. So typically anything that requires lots of cognitive capacity, I'll do it around 11 o'clock. Um, 12 to 2, when most people are having lunch, I'll do a fair bit of my reading or my, um, um, typically readings a bit early and then, then I'll do my admin work um, because in my job, I've got to view a lot of things basically, you know, whatever they are, uh, whether they are, you know, sales, things or service things or tech things doesn't matter they're just things um, that i have to review i review that and then i get into what i call the the, the wind down or the, the bridging back to from work to home life uh, even if even if i'm working out of home so from about two o'clock to about four o'clock i'm now in i want to do activities which are more autonomic or or 
doesn't require a lot of cognitive load. Um, and then from four to five, I'm doing my, my thinking about the following day. So that's my routine, typically, both work and life. And, then, and, and the right reason for the, for the um, transition period, the transition times is just like you would for work, you start thinking about work before you get there. You want to do the same thing for when you get, when you're going back home. Even, even if you're working at home, you want to think about your transition back into the home life. Because it's different dynamics, it's different priorities, different urgencies, different challenges that my wife might have gone through. So I need to transition back to be highly available and highly present with her. Not what I used to do years ago, which was as I'm walking in the door, I'm still on the phone, you know, talking work. And Bridget will be coming saying, you know, dinner's on the table. I'll be nodding to her saying, you know, you know, I'm on the phone. I get to the, I finally get to the dining table with my children. Where's my mind? My mind's still back there on that problem. I don't want that for my children. They're not children anymore. They're adults. I don't want that for my relationship with my wife or my relationship with my, with my sons or my friends or anybody. Um, I want to be present. So, but, but I also know that I've probably got, you know, adult hyperactive attention disorder or something, right? So therefore, I need to transition. I need to think about what I'm going to do. I need to get myself into that mode of thinking, get myself, um, get my energy back up for that and make sure I'm present with those really important people. So transition points become important. Transition point becomes work because you want to you work at it. You want to make sure you do it well, both ways, from home to, to work and from work to home. Um, and then for me, the rest of the evening is about you know, being as connected as I can with my family. Um, I like to read a lot. So quite often whenever I've got a, you know, a, spare, a spare half hour, I'll, I'll do some reading. And I like to summarize whatever I read because I find I, I retain it better that, that way. And then whatever I learn, if I think it's important, I have a habit of making sure I use it within 24 hours, whatever it is. So whether that's, uh, you know, summarizing a, a new course we did a while ago around um, how to be effective presenter in the virtual world. Well, they talked about the three E's, you know, energy, eye contact, engagement. What do I do? literally as soon as we come out of it guess what i'm talking about i'm talking about those three e's and i'm holding myself accountable and letting everybody i talk to know that that's what i'm doing now why is that important because they remind me then if i'm not if i'm not, if I'm not doing it um so pr- this is what i mean about practice makes permanent the more you practice something the more permanent you get more muscle memory you get on certain capabilities and the more learning you put under your belt well the more you can get into that flow state you don't have to think about things um, you can just, if, if an opportunity comes along, the cue that they want you to talk at a keynote or whatever, you can flip on it very quickly and take full advantage of that opportunity. When when did you realize you needed to build like daily habits? Because you seem to have come, seem to have developed them in multiple areas from your personal life to transitioning them into work to just how you're starting your day and uh, and how you're ending the final part of your work day and all of it. And even when you're at work, when did you realize that you that building personal habits could be of advantage? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's I think it was when um, I was my career was going well. We were moving all over the world and doing different things, and I realized that I was operating in what what sometimes called you know unconscious competence. You know, I was I was just going about things, getting things done without really analyzing how the hell I did it. Um, and it wasn't until I read, um, in fact, I think it was Adam Grant's book around decision, around, around influencing people, where he talked about, which I, I like the way he positioned it. He talks about the different sort of ways you can influence people. Um, you can either be a, you know, a prosecutor, 
So you become what I call, what he calls actually, I think he calls it a logic bully, right? You use, you use logos to bully people into submission, or you can be a politician where you just tell everybody what they want to hear, but you do exactly what you want to do. Or you can be a pastor where you, you know, uh, proselytize your beliefs because you've got the truth, right? As a priest or a pastor, you've already got the truth. That's what you believe. You've got the truth. And your job now is to go and convince everybody with, um, you know, hell and damnation and, uh, and all your powers of every God in the, in the, that's ever been, ever been uh, created, that if you don't follow this way, which is the only way, um, you know, you're all going to go to hell. So they, they're the three P's that you, you don't want to do. Um, is it three? So what did I say? Politician, prosecutor, preacher, or pastor. Yep. So the way he talks about you should do is actually take a scientist approach. And what do scientists do? <clears throat> scientists will, have a, will come up with a hunch or a hypothesis. They will determine what assumptions that, they, that led them to that hypothesis. They will come up with a method to test the hypothesis. That's called an experiment. And then you know, any scientist worth their, worth their salt will then try their hardest to prove their hypothesis wrong. So that approach I like, because then you're going, what's working, what's not? Why is it working? Why is it not? Because sometimes, like I said before, you know, I, I was unconsciously competent. I was blissfully ignorant about what my competencies were. And as a result of that, I, I, wasn't, being, I wasn't being present and consciously going, applying my skills or my experience um, or, my, or my, um, my, my privileges to the cause. I just wing it, right? So I like the idea of being more predictable, um, repeatable, scalable, um, and then and then transferable. I like those ideas, and that's when I started thinking. I've got to think about this, and I started reading Adam. I'm a you know, I should I should share with you my my book directory on Google Drive. Um, but basically, there's there's all sorts of different books in there that I like to read. Typically, typically nonfiction. I have read a couple of fiction ones, which uh, which were basically like, you know, um, more parable-like stories, like Ogmandino or uh, Boom in My Cheese, things like that, which are relating to the world, but uh, but but um, set in a parable-like. But typically, it's you know, it's about thinking skills. It's about you know, so you know, all the different parts of your intelligence. Um, you know, right now, as I mentioned before, right now for me, everything is about Everything is about AQ and energy management. Um, that's what it's about, adaptability quotient and energy management. And when I recognize that, because I was talking a lot about the future of work and you know, with robotics and AI and AR and machine learning and everything else, um, people, you know, just like any new technology, people get scared about it. I, I, I double clicked on it and went, well, there's nothing really to be scared about because it's gonna happen anyway. <laughs> what, you've got, what we've got to do is work out how do we stay as the apex of, of our civilization. And actually the way we do it is, is something which is quite natural for us, which is just be a really, really amazing human. So what, because AI and ML can't do that, right? What does that mean? It means being a lifelong learner. What does lifelong learning do for you? It allows you, being, it allows you to be hyper-adaptive. And the thing I recognized, um, brother, was that going forward, I don't necessarily want to, focus on any one language, computer language, you know, uh, cultural language or discipline. What I want, maybe discipline, sorry, is a different word. 
um, but uh, but a, a technical stream or, or a particular industry, what I want to become good at is becoming highly adaptable. Because the more adaptable you are, sorry, I just hit the desk thing. The more adaptable you are, the more you can you can take advantage of opportunities that come to you. And the reason you start seeing more opportunities because when you're highly adaptable, you are exposed to so many more skills, experiences, wisdoms from other people that part of your brain called, I think it's called the reticular activation system or RAS, that brain opens up and it's open. And, and so it's a bit like when you, you know, um, if you buy yourself a bright burnt orange Mazda 626 and you think you're the only person in the world who's got one of those, as soon as you buy it and you start driving it, guess what you see everywhere? You start seeing bright, you know, burnt orange Mazda 66s everywhere. Now, they're always there, but the difference is now your RAS is open and you're more open to seeing them. It's the same with opportunities. Opportunities are all around you. Um, and what I recognized was I was letting opportunities go. And I, I didn't want that. I feel like now my purpose in life is to help others become the leaders that they are because everyone's got leadership in them, um, including my family, including members of my family. And my other purpose in life is to is basically to outlive my elder son so I can give him, um, so we can give him um, the great life that he deserves. So that's, that's what I want to do. And if, now that that purpose is pretty much locked in my, in my psyche, most things that I do is aligned to that purpose. And learning just happens to be something I do not just once in a blue moon, but I do it every opportunity I can. When I'm talking to you, I want to learn. When I talk to you about maybe a new tech platform, I want to learn. Um, I'm not going to learn everything about it in, in, in the first moment, but I want, to, I want to learn probably one, two or three things about it that I can use immediately. Because if I use it immediately, it then sinks into my, into my muscle memory and I can recall it better. So for me, it came from me recognizing all of a sudden that I was going through life blindly. Luckily, I've got some competencies which, which the world values but I didn't fully appreciate what I was doing. And then when I got conscious, I said, okay, let me double click on it. Let me get good at this so that I can be more predictable um, and I can scale out and transfer. I, I love the storytelling. In everything we spoke, it's incredible. So moving to rapid fire round, apples or oranges? Oranges. One piece of advice that is given very often, but you don't agree with? Time is money. One piece of advice that is that is hardly circulated but should be. Energy matters. Your advice to yourself 20 years back. Relax, all gonna happen. Just put in it, put effort in right now. A reminder to yourself 30 years from now. For me, my legacy is did I did I leave people better than I found them? And those people are my family, my friends, um, the people I lead and the people who lead me. You sleep tonight and wake up in 2030. What's the first thing you do? Check my crypto account. <laughs> uh, what's the first thing you Google? Where's Bridget? <laughs> uh, one place you'd love to be for the rest of your life? In my version of Miami. Perfect. Thanks a ton for being here. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate it. You just heard an episode on the Detox Podcast. Do not forget to subscribe on your favorite streaming platform, whether it is Spotify or iTunes. We are there.